Dermatology Snapshots, October 2022, Paper 1. Melanoma with peripheral globules, clinical and dermoscopic features. Moray's et al., Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. Peripheral globules, although a common finding in the young, in older people it causes some anxiety and further guidance is required. Study aim and design. This was a retrospective study that explored the differences between melanocytic nevi and melanomas with peripheral globules. What were the main findings? The study included 401 melanocytic lesions with peripheral globules from 186 patients. 40 presented with melanoma and one had two synchronous melanomas. On demoscopy, melanocytic lesions with a disorganised pattern had 5.93 more chances of being melanoma, whereas melanocytic nevi were more organised. Melanomas were associated with the presence of one or more of the following features. Blotch, atypical dots and globules, or atypical vessels. P, less than 0.01. Melanomas were more common on the lower extremities, whereas melanocytic nevi were more common on the trunk. Limitations, is it applicable? This was a retrospective design. What's the take-home message? If peripheral globules are seen, present on the lower limbs, disorganised pattern, blotches, atypical dots, globules and atypical vessels are all features that may confer a higher risk of melanoma. Paper 2. Adalumumab with methotrexate versus adalumumab monotherapy in psoriasis. First year results of a single blind randomised control trial. Van de Krage, Journal of Investigative Dermatology. Why we chose this paper? Adalubumab methotrexate combination has not been prospectively studied in psoriasis. Neutralising anti-drug antibodies formation against adalumumab contributes to treatment failure. Combining with systemics may enhance drug survival. Study aim and design. Single blind randomised control trial in the Netherlands comparing efficacy, safety, immunogenicity and pharmacokinetics of adalumumab methotrexate with adalumumab monotherapy in chronic plaque psoriasis. The primary endpoint was adalumumab drug survival at 49 weeks. What were the main findings? At 49 weeks, drug survival was higher in the adalumumab methotrexate group, N equals 31, compared with adalumumab monotherapy, N equals 30, 74.2% versus 56.6%, P equals 0.15. Parsi 75 at 49 weeks was 58% versus 36.7%, P equals 0.13. Median change in Parsi was significantly improved in the adalumumab methotrexate group at weeks 5, 8.5 versus 4.1, P less than 0.01, although significant changes were not found for other time points. 
medium serum trough concentrations were slightly higher in the combination group. A smaller proportion of patients developed anti-drug antibodies in the adalumumab methotrexate group, 22.6% versus 60%, p less than 0.01. No serious adverse events ensued. Limitations is applicable. This was a small sample size. Primary endpoint was not statistically significant. There were more males in one group, 80.6% versus 63.3%. There were a few years during duration, 14.8 versus 22.8, and more smokers. What's the take-home message? Adding methotrexate to adalumumab seems to slightly improve the clinical responses in chronic plaque psoriasis, with reduced anti-drug antibodies, with generally improved drug survival, PARSI 75 response after one year, and greater serum trough concentrations compared with adalimumab alone. Further research is required to evaluate this trend, and we think, from a cost-saving perspective, we maybe ought to consider this option more often in dermatology. Paper 3. Cross-sectional characteristics of paediatric onset discoid lupus erythematosus results of a multicenter retrospective cohort study. Ezeratel, Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper? Paediatric discoid lupus is rare and there is a lack of consensus around perceived risk factors for systemic lupus in paediatric discoid lupus patients. Delays in diagnosis and treatment initiation can lead to poor health outcomes as paediatric onset systemic lupus is typically more aggressive than adult onset. Study aim and design. This was a retrospective multi-centre cohort study of 17 sites using medical records to identify clinical outcomes using patient characteristics and systemic lupus diagnosis at first documented visit based on primary, the American College of Rheumatology, and secondary, Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinic's secondary criteria, SLIC criteria. What were the main findings? The cohort was ethnically diverse and mostly female, 72%. 438 met inclusion criteria. Systemic lupus diagnosis at baseline visit was given in 162, 37% of patients by ACR and in 181, 41% patients by SLIC criteria. Paediatric discoid lupus and systemic lupus patients were older at rash onset with shorter time from discoid lupus onset to diagnosis compared with Paediatric discoid lupus only. Paediatric discoid lupus and systemic lupus was more common in females, patients with generalised discoid lupus, and had higher level of end organ involvement. Limitations, is it applicable? This was a retrospective study, which was limited by the quality of data and medical record keeping and it was difficult to keep track of disease activity. It also included referral bias, as all the sites were tertiary centres.
What's the take-home message? A diagnosis of paediatric discoid lupus should prompt thorough screening for systemic lupus. Paediatric discoid lupus and systemic lupus group are more likely to have generalised discoid lupus, be female and be older, usually over 10 years old. Paper 4. Association of risk of instant venous thromboembolism with atopic dermatitis and treatment with Janus kinase inhibitors. A systematic review and meta-analysis. Chen et al. JAMA Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. It's an exciting time for severe eczema. We're all racing to get our heads around the new JAK inhibitors and their respective side effect profiles, which is tricky as previous data was from rheumatoid arthritis patients and it's not clear whether we can generalise it to the eczema cohort. Study aim and design. A systematic review with a broad range of inputs up to February 2022. Studies looking at association between underlying atopic dermatitis and venothromboembolism, as well as randomised control trials reporting venous thromboembolism in atopic dermatitis patients on JAK inhibitors were included. Two cohort studies and 15 randomised control trials with nearly 500,000 participants were included in the meta-analysis. What were the main findings? The hazard ratio of 0.95 indicates no significant association was found between atopic dermatitis and venothromboembolism. Confidence interval 0.62 to 1.45. Of 5,722 eczema patients on JAK inhibitors, three had venothromboembolism, 0.05%, versus one out of 3,065 patients receiving a placebo or dupilumab, 0.03%, which was calculated to be no difference in risk. There was no significant difference in risk of renothromboembolism between patients on JAK inhibitors versus placebo. Limitations, is it applicable? In time, database registry data will provide an even clearer picture. It is likely that the studies excluded patients with thromboembolism risk factors. What's the take-home message? This meta-analysis provides significant reassurance that the eczema cohort are of low risk of venous thromboembolism overall and that JAK inhibitors probably don't increase significantly this risk. Paper 5. Reducing NHS outpatient follow-up activity by 25%. Can it be done in dermatology? Patel. Clinical Experimental Dermatology. We share the concerns raised by the author that this minimal target set in the NHS Recovery Plan, ERP, which we're expected to reach by March 2023, is ambitious to say the least. This helpful letter notes the already overstretched workforce, the burden of chronic disease management and the expanding range of novel biologics as potential hurdles. We're reminded that the Getting It Right First Time report for Dermatology 2021 encourages us to reduce unnecessary follow-up and directs us to the BAD top tips for advice on achieving this. This target will mean GPs will need to take on more systemic follow-ups and manage more benign dermatoses. 
we agree that a greater emphasis on empowering juniors to safely discharge patients could be a helpful curriculum focus. Departments that have already proactively reduced their follow-up workload may struggle to find another 25%. We wonder if a standardised target for new-to-follow-up ratio across the UK may be more equitable. Paper 6. Noteworthy Cases Red Scrotum Syndrome An update on clinicopathological features, pathogenesis, diagnosis and management. Cahill et al. Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. What is it? Red scrotum syndrome, RSS, was first reported in 1997 and describes a condition typically affecting white men aged 50 and older. It presents as chronic persistent scrotal erythema with burning sensation, hyperalgesia and itching. It usually follows prolonged topical corticosteroid use. Some have suggested it may be an atypical variant of erythromyalgia. When should I think about it? Red scrotum syndrome is a diagnosis of exclusion. A prolonged history of corticosteroid use is typical. It presents with continuous symptoms, unlike erythromyalgia. The erythema in red scrotum syndrome is well demarcated and usually involves the anterior half of the scrotum. How do we diagnose it? The diagnosis is a clinical one made after exclusion of more common causes of scrotal erythema. Histology is nonspecific and spongiosis and atrophy may be seen. Withdrawal of corticosteroids is the key, although rebounds and symptoms are common. Beta blockers, doxycycline, gabapentin and pregabalin have all been used with success. Related red burning skin syndromes include red scalp syndrome, red ear syndrome and red vulval syndrome.